Our next uh, presenter, Professor uh, Robert McDonald, or you can call him Rob or Hey You if you want, <laughs> the answers to all of those, uh, is responsible for teaching history to uh, those people who are going to go on and staff the United States military, specifically the Army at the United States Military Academy at West Point. He's also an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute, and he's a really a remarkable scholar of American history. He's a specialist on Jefferson and the early American Republic. He gained some notoriety some years ago. Big article in the New York Times for having identified a Jefferson scrapbooks. And turns out that he was the one who turned them over and saw that they were on envelopes addressed to Thomas Jefferson. And he said, hmm, maybe these were Thomas Jefferson's scrapbooks. <laughs> Great advance. But he's also published a number of very important books, and he's going to share his wealth of knowledge about the American founding. Rob. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Tom was kind enough to invite me, and, and I have the opportunity to, to speak to you a couple times uh, during the course of the week. And I thought it made sense to start at the beginning, um, the very start of American history, at least the very start of um, the history of English-speaking people in America with the settlements at Jamestown and Plymouth. And uh, if you know a little bit about colonial America, you realize that um, we were really just kind of this loose band of colonies that had um, been planted on the uh, eastern seaboard. Uh, it's kind of a truism that the people who, who came to America from England, they came from different parts of England, they settled in different parts of America, um, they came for different reasons. We know that uh, the people who settled in Jamestown, for example, um, they came essentially to make money. Uh, those people who settled in Plymouth, they came because they wanted to establish um, what, what one of their uh, rulers would describe as a city on a hill, this, this great shining example of people living a good and godly life in a new world that would be a beacon of hope um, and an example to, to all the folks on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, we know that there were people in the middle, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, um, who were sort of a, a hybrid of those two models. The old um, adage is that a, a Quaker is someone who prays for you uh, one day a week and, and prays on you, the other six. Um, <laughs> wily business people, um, you know, very good at, at, at producing things. So there's a great deal of diversity in colonial America, and it's always uh, problematic to generalize, a and yet, the experiences of the settlers in Jamestown and Plymouth seem to illustrate a general principle that should be of interest um, to all of us. Uh, basically, it's that incentives matter, and that if you don't get the incentives uh, right, the results can be disastrous. Now, of course, before you have uh, Jamestown in 1607 and Plymouth in 1620, um, you have in the 1580s, um, the attempted establishment of a colony um, down in Roanoke. We think of colonial America as being this kind of powdered wigged, um, apple pie scented Williamsburg sort of experience. And, and, you know, for some it was like that, especially later on into the 1700s. But in the very early years, um, it was really dicey. And nothing illustrates that more than the experience of the settlers at Roanoke. And of course, their experience is shrouded in, in mystery. We know that this uh, small group of, of settlers uh, was planted off the coast of North Carolina. We know that, um, you know, to simplify things dramatically, 
The ship came, it dropped them off, it waved goodbye, sailed back to England, and then it returned. And when it returned, what did it find? Basically nothing, right? The this, this settlement had vanished into thin air, and all that was left were some words carved onto a tree, Croatoan. And, you know, the big mystery is, well, what does that mean? Um, some people theorize that there was a, an Indian nation nearby named Croatoan, and um, the, this is the, the, you know, the work of the people to indicate that they had gone off to live with these Indians. Um, others theorize that they were under attack by these Indians, and they were, you know, leaving this as a warning. Others uh, argue that, no, there was an island or some, you know, place that they called Croatoan to which they had moved. Um, others theorize uh, that uh, space aliens had come and beamed them up, probed them extensively. Who knows? Who knows? But uh, the Roanoke mystery, I think, begins to uh, come into some focus when you look at Jamestown, when you look at Plymouth. What happened to these people? I have a pretty good idea because it's what almost happened to the people who settled Virginia and Massachusetts. Jamestown, right? Jamestown is not the auspicious beginning of American history that people might wish to believe. Jamestown is, uh, in many respects, a death trap. Jamestown is, in many respects, a disaster. Jamestown is, in many respects, a calamity. I tell my students, um, that especially given its unequal gender distribution, depending on your preferences, it's sort of like a, an especially lame fraternity party in a swamp where everybody dies. <laughs> not, not everybody, but, but, but many people. Um, and the, uh, the situation was, was so dire, I, I'm all, almost at a loss for words. Um, so I'm going to rely upon the words of uh, the sadly recently late, um, but, but always great, Yale historian Edmund Morgan um, from his book, American Slavery, American Freedom. Uh, generally, it's a really bad idea to try to read to an audience, just not good public speaking, but this is so compelling. You're gonna love it. Um, so hold on to your seats and listen to this. Skip over the first couple of years when it was easy for Englishmen to make mistakes in the strange new world to which they had come. And look at Jamestown in the winter of 1609 to 1610. It is three planting seasons since the colony began. The settlers have fallen into an uneasy truce with the Indians, punctuated by guerrilla raids on both sides, but they have had plenty of time in which they could have grown crops. They have obtained corn from the Indians and supplies from England. They have firearms. Game abounds in the woods, and Virginia's rivers are filled with sturgeon in the summer and covered with geese and ducks in the winter. There are 500 people in the colony now and they are starving. They scour the woods listlessly for nuts, roots, and berries. And they offer the only authentic examples of cannibalism witnessed in Virginia. One provident man chops up his wife and salts down the pieces. Others dig up graves to eat the corpses. By spring, only 60 are left alive. One final scene. In the spring of 1612, and Governor Dale is supervising the building of a fort at Henrico, near the present site of Richmond. He pauses to deal with some of his men, Englishmen 
who have committed a serious crime. In the words of George Percy, some he appointed to be hanged, some burned, some to be broken upon wheels, others to be staked, and some to be shot to death. The reason for such extremities was the seriousness of the crime and the need to deter others from it. And guess what people were doing? Stealing food's a good guess, but that, that wasn't the crime. I don't think there was much to steal. Missing church? Missing church? No. <laughs> they had run away to live with the Indians. What, what would you do in, in, in a situation like this? Um, the, uh, the settlers in the spring of 1611 had been reinforced with more men and supplies from England. The preceding winter had not been as gruesome as the one before, thanks in part to corn obtained from the Indians. But the colony still is not growing its own corn. The governor, Lord Delawar, weakened by the winter, has returned to England for his health. His replacement, Sir Thomas Dale, reaches Jamestown in May, a time when all hands could have been used in planting. Dale finds nothing planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. And the people he finds at their daily and usual works, bowling in the streets. How do you, I mean, what do you, how do you begin to explain this? This is madness. This is suicide. I mean, what is up with Jamestown? It, it seems to make no sense. And, and yet what we know helps us to understand why this colony might have been dysfunctional. And, and I think, you know, a good historian is always looking for multiple causes. Um, there usually isn't just one simple answer, although I think there is one really important part of the answer. Um, but I'll save that for a minute from now. First, I should tell you a couple of things. I mean, there, there are a number of different factors that help us to understand why the people of Jamestown um, were so bad at providing for themselves, were so bad at sustaining themselves. One factor is uh, perhaps that uh, a lot of these, these settlers weren't really settlers. It's kind of faulty to give them that term. They were adventurers. Jamestown, unlike Plymouth, wasn't intended to be a permanent colony. All right? It was an enterprise of the Virginia Company um, of London. Uh, it was this, this private uh, project uh, funded by private investors. They were sending people over, um, including people who were among the investors, to come to the New World, hopefully to discover what the Spanish had discovered in the New World. What did the Fani Spanish find in, in, yeah, the America's gold? They, they hoped to come to America to find gold, to extract it, and go back to England. They wanted to get rich quick. So a very risky enterprise, um, but one that, that was not predicated upon the, the, the belief that these people would settle here permanently. The colony may have been a, a permanent colony. They didn't have planned to abandon it, but the individuals who were there envisioned that, you know, with big smiles on their faces and bags of gold, they would get back on board a ship and head back to England. So that's uh, one factor to consider. I think if you uh, believe that you're establishing something um, for the long run for yourself, you might be more likely to, uh, to set yourself up for success than if you think you're just a, a temporary visitor. Another factor to consider, because they thought that this was not going to be a, uh, a permanent situation 
um, for themselves as individuals. The vast majority of people who settled in Virginia were, were young guys who were single. The, the gender ratio was very uneven. It was about 85% male, about 15% female. And these guys, many of them, were very young. Um, there were a good number of men in their late teens. Uh, the majority of the uh, adventurers who were at Jamestown were in their 20s. Uh, a smaller number when were in their 30s. I'm 43. By the time you got to my age, you were sort of a, you know, part of the, 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 the geriatric class. It, it was um, an environment where the majority of the men are young and single. And I don't know about you, perhaps you uh, were once a man who was young and single. Uh, perhaps you uh, know men or new men who are young and single. Um, there's probably a reason why auto insurance companies charge young and single men more uh, than, than, than other uh, demographic groups. You know, there, there probably is this, this sense that um, you're invincible. There probably is this sense that it's all for you. You know, now I have uh, a wife, I have two kids, we have a mortgage. Uh, my actions have real consequences, not just for myself, but for other people. So perhaps that uh, had a negative impact upon the behavior of the settlers in Jamestown. There's the fact that a large number of them were children of the aristocracy. We know that the, uh, the laws of England uh, back in the day, and this would apply to America as well for, for decades, um, favored the firstborn son and inheritance. So if you were the, the second or third or fourthborn son of a member of the English gentry, you had to figure out what you were going to do with yourself. You weren't going to inherit the land. You weren't going to inherit the title. So you need to find some occupation, some way of, of providing yourself, some way of, of moving forward in the world. You could become an officer in the military. Uh, you could become a priest. You could uh, try to become a professor at Oxford or Cambridge. Um, but there really weren't that many socially accepted uh, options available to you. So the idea of going to Virginia and quickly making uh, your fortune, that was very appealing. Um, but when you think about uh, a, a group of folks you perhaps wouldn't want to leave uh, alone in a swamp in Virginia up to their own devices, maybe the, the spoiled sons of the elite, um, you know, maybe they're not the, the best people to send off you know, on a camping expedition. The, uh, the working class, if, if, if we could use that term, the, the sort of middling people who they brought along um, tended to be urban artisans. Remember that they expected that they were going to find gold. So they brought with them metal workers and, and, and people with related skill sets. They didn't bring with them folks from the countryside who had much experience with farming. So the, the deck might seem to be stacked against them. And then we could add a, another really kind of interesting development. Um, recent scientific work has shown that there was a drought um, in and around Jamestown um, for about five, six, or seven years, um, immediately before and after the arrival of the Jamestown colonists. And this drought uh, not only would have um, impeded the growth of crops. Now, we know it, it didn't stop the growth of crops because they were getting plenty of corn from the Indians. The Indians were, were able to grow corn, um, but it perhaps didn't um, provide them with the most ideal conditions. 
And of course, they settled by the James River. And the James River, if it's not you know, fed with, with, with rainfall, would become quite brackish and, and salty. And so if you consume uh, water with too much salt in it, you know, it, it could have uh, pretty debilitating physical and, and mental effects. So we, I don't want to discount any of these factors. But I, I think a, a clue to the problem lies in the uh, statement of the governor, Thomas Dale. When, when he arrived, uh, he noticed that nothing was planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. And everyone is bowling in the streets. People were growing things, a small number of people were growing things in private gardens. The reason that Dale phrased it this way and the reason that Dale took note of these private gardens is because the, the regime of, 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 of agriculture, as the Virginia Company had set it up, it was a communal enterprise. The Virginia Company didn't want these people to be uh, off on their own trying to uh, profit for themselves. The Virginia Company wanted people working diligently for the good of the Virginia Company. And so it came up with this sort of centralized means of, of growing corn and, and, and other foodstuffs. There was communal land, and everybody was supposed to go out into the field. They were all supposed to contribute equally of their labor. And come harvest, they were all going to share equally of the, the bounty that was supposed to result. But what was the result? It was starvation. There was no bounty to share. And we can imagine, and I, you know, it's a shame that our records from the early 1600s are so fragmentary. But, but you could easily imagine how, how this sort of unfolded. Here are these English people. It gets pretty hot in Virginia, pretty muggy. They go on out into the field. They start doing their work. But gosh, you're the second-born son of an aristocrat. Or you're from London. You never really spent too much time working the land. This is hard. And it's hot. And oh gosh, I just sneezed. I think I'll call in sick, right? <laughs> and, and, and people sort of get this, this idea. And people begin to, to shirk their duties. And the more people do that, the more the people who remain in the field feel as if they're being taken advantage of. Feel as if they're going to be exploited. Just to make the, the numbers easy, imagine that there are 100 people out there who are supposed to be working in the field. And at harvest time, each person is going to get 1% of the crop. Well, if half of them are, are, have called in sick and there are only 50 people out there, they're, they're doing um, double the amount of work that they should do. And they're still only going to get 1% of the crop. The incentives are all messed up. They're all wrong. So a few people, a few smart people, they, they decide that they're going to break the rules and kind of establish, you know, lay claim to their own little plot of land. They're going to grow some corn for themselves. But it seems the majority just give up. They get drunk. They go bowling in the streets. They just sort of hang around. And they watch as they themselves and, and, and others around them starve to death. They rely on the Indians with whom they have an uneasy relationship. Powhatan, 
um, you know, the chief of this powerful uh, nation uh, that surrounded Jamestown, had a good reason to keep the, 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 these new Virginians around. They, they brought um, goods from the, from the old world um, to trade, um, including weapons that would make him even more powerful. Um, so he liked having them around to trade, but they were kind of pesky, they were kind of annoying, and they were mooches. They were mooches because they became completely reliant upon the Powhatans for their food. So Jamestown's a real disaster until, until Thomas Dale decides, and he doesn't even, you know, it, it would probably take too much time uh, for it to happen anyway, but he doesn't ask permission from the Virginia Company. He on his own says, this is a crisis. We, I need to intercede. I'm going to divide up the land. And, and I'm going to assign, you know, private plots to individuals. And I'm going to make them responsible for growing their own land, or growing their own food. And once he does, suddenly there's corn. Once he does, the starvation ceases. And soon, of course, Jamestown is going to get on its own two feet economically. They never discover the gold that they'd been looking for, but they do discover that they can plant um, this, this amazing uh, crop that is almost as good as gold, tobacco, right? And tobacco becomes um, the reason for their existence. And slowly um, and, and unsurely, Virginia kind of gets uh, planted firmly into the ground. And uh, by the middle of the 1600s, the colony begins to flourish. But we could see in Jamestown what probably happened in Roanoke. The, the mystery of Roanoke, um, I think, is, is, is pretty easily solved. We might not know the specifics, but I think that's the, the basic contours of what happened. And if Virginia isn't enough evidence, well, then we could look at, at Plymouth. You know, it's always good to have a control group. It's always good to... Uh, to look at uh, a different group of people who have somewhat different circumstances. And I, and I, I freely admit that uh, the settlers at Jamestown had a lot going against them. There was the, the fact that many were single, the fact that many were young, the fact that they weren't there to stay, the fact that um, they perhaps didn't arrive with uh, the best skills um, given their new environment. There was the fact that there was the drought. Sure, all of those things worked against them. None of those things worked against the settlers at Plymouth. Plymouth was an entirely different deal. The people who arrived uh, at Plymouth in 1620 arrived as families. They arrived with, with uh, husbands, wives, parents, young kids. Rather than being um, folks who were urban artisans and members of the elite, the, uh, the pilgrims were a middling sort of people. And they did have experience farming. They did have experience providing for themselves back in England. And, and some might say, well, you know, you can imagine how the settlers at Jamestown wouldn't be good at working together because they were all in it for themselves. They all just wanted to get rich. Well, the pilgrims, they arrived together. They risked their lives for God together. I mean, the enterprise of crossing the Atlantic in the early 1600s was fraught with peril. I, I, I would much more happily put my two little kids on a rocket and send them to the International Space Station 
right, than I would put them on the Mayflower and, and have them cross the Atlantic Ocean in 1620. And I think the numbers bear that out. Only about half of the people who crossed the ocean would, would survive, would actually arrive safely on the shore of this new continent. And you can imagine how, how absolutely horrifying it must have been. I mean, it must have been a relief to arrive. But then when you stop and pause and you look at the coastline and you see these woods, dense and seemingly impenetrable, filled with who knows what, what kind of strange people, what kind of strange beasts, what kind of future awaits you in this new world? A new world where, to compare it to the International Space Station, I mean, they're Skyping up there, you know? You are, you are utterly cut off from the experience of the world that you left behind. Only a few ships will go back and forth. You've made this move permanently, and you've made it um, for the, the, the noblest reason that, that I can think of. You made it because you want to make a better world. This isn't just a new England. This is a new and improved England. These are a group of people who had been persecuted for their faith um, back in the old world. They, uh, they, they initially left England, and they moved to Holland because, uh, you know, they, they, they found it so difficult to practice their faith as they wished and live freely. Um, in Holland, they found much more tolerance, but they found that their students, I'm sorry, they found that their, their young people, um, their kids, they started to listen to, like, ABBA and wear wooden shoes. <laughs> they started speaking Hollish, you know? I mean, it, it was, it was uh, unbearable for them. They really wanted to raise their children in their own image. So they moved back to England very briefly, and then they left from Plymouth, England, and they arrived, um, you know, after a real ordeal in, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And as John Winthrop would later say, this was to be a city on a hill. This was to be a, a beacon, an example, a, a, a light for the world. This was, was going to be this new, good, and godly society that would be so brilliant that people on the other side of the Atlantic would look over the horizon and, and, and see it glimmering in the distance, that it would inspire them to improve their lives and reform their church and their faith and their community. This is a, a utopian kind of project. And yet still... Still, communal farming was a disaster. The same setup, the private joint stock company that funded this expedition, which included not only investors back in England, but also the settlers themselves. They uh, had an agreement worked out where uh, everybody would work for the company for the first seven years. Afterwards, they would split it up. They would cash out their shares. But for the first seven years, everyone was supposed to be working for the company. And again, the company had the same uh, concerns that the Virginia company had uh, miles to the south. The company didn't want people working for themselves on company time. And all the time was company time. People were supposed to go out into the communal field. They were supposed to share equally in the labor. They were supposed to equally divide up the harvest. And yet the governor, William Bradford, took note of, of how disgruntled people were with this. Young, strong men out there 
doing what they consider to be more than their fair share of the work, you know, literally lifting a, a heavier load. And, and, and yet they would be fed just as much as the people who are older or weaker, people who are younger, people who uh, were, were sickly. It didn't strike them as fair. They resented it. Other people resented that they would be out there when they were sickly or when they were old or when they were weak. And, and people didn't work. And people didn't produce. And so Bradford finally came to the same conclusion that down in Virginia, Thomas Dale had come to. Bradford decided that these people, you know, who live all clustered together, who know each other, who are members of the same church, who have shared this great ordeal with one another, if they can't be made to work together, if they can't make collectivism work, then, then no one can. And so he decided in 1623 that the pilgrims should set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust to themselves. And he assigned to every family a parcel of land and ranged all boys and youth um, under some family. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means. So every family got their own plot of land. They were responsible for growing their own food. And single people who weren't attached to a family were assigned to a family, and they would live in the same household. And that small group had to work together. That small group had to provide for itself. And the result wasn't starvation. In Plymouth, after the first um, you know, short uh, winter where they really didn't have an opportunity to, to plant for themselves, the second winter, Half the people starved. So slightly better you know, ratio of survival than down at Jamestown. Jamestown, it's 60 live out of 500. In Plymouth, 50% die. So I, I suppose you know, the, the extreme disadvantages at Jamestown count for something, but they don't count for everything. This is collectivism that's doing this. And the result, as Bradford notes, is an incredible amount of corn an incredible bounty. I mean, look at this 1624 photograph. <laughs> I wanna quickly tell you about what happens next. Collectivism is, uh, is one danger that the colonists are going to face, and they conquer that. But another danger is going to be collective decision-making. Another danger is going to be politics. It's not just uh, collectivism that will cause people to die. It's not just collectivism that will end or ruin people's lives. The, the, the real tragedies in both Virginia and Massachusetts are going to come later. And I'm referring specifically to the origins of the institution of slavery and the origins of the Salem witchcraft trials because they provide us, I think, with a really important warning um, for, for what could happen, even when good people with, with seemingly good intentions come together to govern themselves and make decisions for themselves and don't respect people's individual rights. So tobacco is a boom crop down in Virginia. At first, it was uh, a problem getting enough labor. Where are we to get people? Now, one of the first uh, 
boom crops in, in Virginia was in 1619. They first really started growing tobacco in 1617, but by 1619, this was a profitable operation. And 1619 is really a banner year in many respects for the history of America, um, an important year um, for reasons that are good and bad. Good, perhaps, was the fact that in 1619, you see the establishment of the House of Burgesses, right? The new world's first representative assembly. That's a big deal. And yet, if you go to Jamestown now, and it's really a wonderful place. I mean, they've uh, uncovered the footprint of the original fort. You can see right where it was. And, and right on the uh, exterior of the original fort, there was a, a church building, a meeting house. And in that building in 1619, and, and they have the foundations exposed. You could go into um, what is a, a more recent church from the, the 18th century, but they have this glass floor, and you could look down through the floor of this church at, at the, the footprint and the foundation, the brick foundation of this old church, and, and see the exact spot where representative government began in the Western Hemisphere. And, and yet, just about 100 yards from that spot, the same place, the same year, 1619, there was a dock, and up to that dock, there was a Dutch slave ship, blown off course, wasn't even headed for Virginia, but off of it came two dozen Africans who had been kidnapped in their continent and brought as slaves to ours. So American slavery and American freedom, they begin at the same place and at the same time. Now, slavery was not the predominant form of labor in Virginia in the early years. Slavery uh, was really kind of expensive to buy someone's labor for life. That was very expensive, especially in the 16-teens, in the 1620s, in the 1630s, when life expectancy in Virginia was still pretty short. To, to, to buy a slave's labor for life. It's a dicey proposition because an enslaved person, like an English person, might not live very long. And so the, the dominant form of labor for the first few decades in Virginia was indentured servitude. And poor people in England who desperately sought uh, some sort of opportunity, who, who thought that just about all opportunities were closed off to them um, in, in England itself, would volunteer to serve as indentured servants. And Virginia planters who owned some land but needed people to work on that land, they had agents in England who would negotiate contracts with these people who volunteered to be indentured servants. And, and essentially, the contracts worked like this. Your passage across the Atlantic is provided for. All right, you get free passage across the Atlantic in exchange for your agreement to work uh, for your master for four or five or six or seven years. And at the end of your term of indenture, there was generally um, a provision that provided people with a grant of their own land. And the House of Burgesses, the government of Virginia, wanted to see the, the colony's population increase. And so it subsidized this enterprise by creating the headright system. And the headright system said that every, every person brought over, or every person who brings another person over, gets 50 or 75, depending upon the year, acres of land. 
So the planters who were bringing over indentured servants would be given this land and they would be able to build this into their contracts with the indentured servants. And early on, most indentured servants didn't survive their terms of indenture. You know, tragic and sad, but probably not the worst thing in the world for the planters, especially if the indentured servants, say you have a seven-year contract, you know, for the planter, if you're really cold and calculating, um, if somebody died at six years and 11 months, you know, you, they, there are worse, worse things that you can imagine happening to a planter than that because they got to keep the land. But as the decades passed, as Virginia got more settled, a couple of things started to happen. First of all, the, uh, the divide in Virginia was less between white people and black people because, of course, there were some slaves who were in Virginia. And while rare, slavery was growing as well. And there appears to be a good amount of, of racial harmony. There were white people who didn't own their own labor working out in the fields, standing next to black people who didn't own their own labor standing in the fields. The divide was, are you a free man or are you not? And there were plenty of white people who were not free. And the temporary condition that was indentured servitude. In practice, slavery seemed to be a temporary condition as well. Slaves were given the opportunity um, to, to work on Sundays, um, to work odd jobs, to earn some money, and to buy their own freedom. And a number of slaves did. On uh, the eastern shore of Virginia, we have especially good records of a number of uh, African um, families or African-American families that had been born in Africa, and some individuals had been born in America, but they were born um, uh, as either freemen who were kidnapped and made slaves, or they were born in Virginia as slaves. But they were able to purchase their own freedom. And then they were able to purchase their own land. It's a wonderful uh, book about this phenomenon called Mine Own Ground, um, Race and, and, and Freedom on Virginia's Eastern Shore by uh, Tim Breen and Stephen Innes. And uh, there are a number of individuals about whom we have pretty good records, um, including the man of whom this is a conjectural drawing, Anthony Johnston. Another uh, named Tony Longo. Several black families living on the Eastern Shore of Virginia who own their own lands and will come to own the labor of white indentured servants. Some will even own the labor of African slaves. And what's really amazing is, is how their experience sort of confronts the stories that we tell ourselves about, about racism. I mean, I think most people uh, would probably agree that the farther back you go, the more racist it gets, right? And, and yet, the experience of Virginia in the 1600s contradicts that. Anthony Johnston had a property line dispute with a white neighbor. And so they went to court, and a jury ruled in favor, a white jury ruled in favor of Anthony Johnston. The, the free black people on Virginia's eastern shore, and there's, there's no reason to think that this wasn't the case for free black people in counties for which we have uh, you know, poor records, but they were members of the local militia. They were members of their Anglican parish vestries. 
They, they co-signed uh, loans and witnessed legal documents for their white neighbors. In other words, it seems as if they existed in, 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 a, in a rough sort of equality with their white neighbors in this pioneer environment until, until the 1660s and especially the 1670s when in Virginia we see a uh, rebellion that is provoked in part by antipathy between former indentured servants now who are increasingly surviving their terms of indenture, increasingly getting their own land, increasingly planting their own tobacco. And of course you have the members of the House of Burgesses, the elite, the entrenched, who don't like this new competition. There once had been a time when Virginians seemingly couldn't grow enough tobacco to satisfy the desire of Europeans. And yet now, the desire was beginning to taper off. You know, now the, uh, the boom in uh, the demand for, for tobacco had flattened, and yet the production of tobacco continued to increase. As more and more people survived their terms of indenture and got their own land and moved farther and farther west, more and more acres were being cultivated. More and more tobacco was being grown. A bunch of former indentured servants in 1676, led by a man named Nathaniel Bacon, wanted greater assistance from the House of Burgesses dealing with Indian tribes that were resentful, for obvious reasons, of their uh, desire to expand the lands that they owned and cultivated. In other words, they wanted, you know, more, more men and more weapons out on the frontier to protect them. And in the first example of insincere political correctness in America, the Virginia House of Burgesses said, oh no, thou mustn't um, you know, tread upon the ancestral grounds of the Native Americans to whom we have made treaties. Mustn't do that. But of course, that's what they had done. It was good enough for them to take Indians' land, but they didn't want these new upstarts to do it because that would mean even more economic competition. And so Nathaniel Bacon and his followers um, first attacked a bunch of Indians, then they headed eastward. They, they attacked Jamestown, they burned it down. Finally, the governor, William Barclay, was able to rally his troops. Nathaniel Bacon ended up holding up in what uh, in the 1670s counted as a castle. This is a house in, uh, on the other side of the James in Surrey County, Virginia known as Bacon's Castle. Here, Nathaniel Bacon uh, died of what the documents describe as the bloody flux. Um, his rebellion dissipated. Governor Barkley restored order. But the House, House of Burgesses, they, they made an important decision. A series of laws were passed that did away with indentured servitude, that ended the, the subsidy for indentured servitude by getting rid of the headright system and moving instead toward a system of permanent race-based slavery. So it became against the law for an enslaved person to buy his own freedom. It became against the law for free black people to own guns. And then this is the most chilling. At first glance, it might not seem so, but if you really think it through, you could see how utterly debilitating this would be. It made it against the law for free black people to enter into legally binding contracts. They had no protection from the law. 
And so these men like Tony Longo and Anthony Johnson and their families about whom we have such great records prior to Bacon's Rebellion, afterwards just vanish. They just vanish from, from the records. And we have no idea what happened to them, although presumably the outcome wasn't good. So a really insidious, really insidious end to the story of how Virginia, of how colonial Virginia became colonial Virginia as, as, as we know it, as we imagine it. And then finally, and very briefly, um, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Massachusetts. Similar sort of uh, story in some respects. There was a great deal of success. You know, after the first couple of generations, as, uh, as the, the Puritans of Massachusetts, as the Pilgrims of Plymouth um, got firmly planted on their feet, um, these uh, two groups of people kind of joined together and Massachusetts began to prosper. Many people still retained the traditional way of producing semi-subsistence agriculture, little family farms. An increasing number became more worldly, reached out um, and began to trade with other colonies, with England, with other parts of the world. There was a great deal of uh, rising prosperity. There was an increase in what we might describe as cosmopolitanism. But that brought with it some real tensions. And many people believe that those were manifested in the Salem witch trials of the 1690s. Now, a lot of people view the Salem witchcraft uh, episode as, as an embarrassingly uh, you know, backward sort of uh, event in American history. I, I, I think that they were definitely behind the times because uh, my hometown, Stratford, Connecticut, we hanged our first witch in 1651, all right? <laughs> 40 years before Salem. I don't know what took them so long. But of course, there are a lot of theories about what sparked this. What sparked this, this hysteria about witchcraft? Some people theorize that there was, in this instance, too much rain. There was this um, kind of fungus that grew upon their wheat um, that had psychedelic effects, and that either people consumed this um, and it caused them to behave strangely, and so people thought they were witches. Or people consumed this, and it caused them to see strange things, and they thought people were witches. Other people have written books uh, about how gender factored into this. Now, we know that a number of the accused witches were men. But this is really important. A large number of the accused witches were also women. And of those women... A disproportionate number were women who seemed, through their ownership of property, through their wealth, and through their independence, to challenge the dominance of men. It wasn't just any women who were being accused of witchcraft. A large number of those who had been accused of witchcraft were women who were widows, women who inherited uh, property from their fathers and never married, Women, in other words, who were their own decision makers. Women who were the heads of their own households. Women who had power that women, back in that time, in that place, were not supposed to have. And we know, too, that geography factors into the Salem witchcraft trials in ways um, that suggest something about the resentment 
of traditionalists who were these family farmers who were growing crops the way that their parents did and their parents did, and those who were increasingly worldly and increasingly commercially engaged. You could divide Salem into two halves. Right? The harbor is right here. This is the seaport. Right? This is where um, the, the boats drop anchor. This is where sailors from, from different places um, end up in town, end up buying things, ending up exchanging goods and ideas. In the western half of Salem, this is the traditional era, area. This is the spot where you still have these semi-subsistence family farms. On the map, the A's, those stand for the residences of accusers. The D's stand for the residences of defenders. And the circle W's stand for the residences of people who were accused of witchcraft. The, the evidence is fragmentary, but it seems that you can make a strong case that the Salem witch trials were a, a manifestation of people using government to go after other people who they believed had too much wealth or too much independence or who had accumulated their wealth in ways that they didn't approve of. Of all the uh, possible interpretations of the Salem witchcraft trials, it, it, it seems fair enough to say that it was a witch hunt. People using the government to benefit themselves and hurt others who were unlike themselves. So in these two colonies, these two big colonies that in many ways provide models for the future United States, these two colonies that contain so much promise and portend so much of the good that will happen in American history. These two colonies also offer us important warnings of the bad things that can happen if when Americans come together to govern themselves, they lose their respect for individuals and their rights. Thank you very much. So I guess we have a little bit of time for questions. Uh, the Indians didn't starve. What mechanism did they have for um, farming and distributing their, their corn? The Indians grew, uh, well, you know, the Indians of, of Virginia and Pow the Powhatans is who I'm referring to specifically because there's a lot of diversity among Indians. but. Um, they, they essentially uh, did it the way that uh, the Virginians and the people of Massachusetts would find success doing it. They did it as family groups. So uh, it wasn't this big collective regime where there was one big collective field and people all were supposed to work together and share the harvest equally. Um, they divide, divided up into, into you know, what we might call family groups, and, and that's how they uh, organized their labor. And the result is they had plenty of corn, you know, even uh, in the years of drought, when the uh, people of Virginia were, you know, seemingly incapable of growing their own. Yeah. Hi, my name is Mike Craig. Uh, similar question, I suppose. As opposed to the colonies who were basically escaping uh, the old world, um, to what extent did um, kind of dedicated British loyalists and also settlers of Nouvelle France owe taxes or royalties to their crowns, and how did that affect kind of their incentives? 
Um, well, I know that uh, you know members of the uh, the Plymouth Colony, for example, um, they had to pay after they received finally a, a royal charter. They had to pay uh, you know a, a small quit rent, small tax. Uh, I, I think it was pretty minimal. I don't know that it was particularly burdensome upon them. Uh, and I don't know that it, you know, we heard yesterday about at what threshold um, on the Laffer curve does it discourage you from working. It was, it was well below that 50% mark um, that Professor Myron pointed out. Um, so I don't know that it really had much impact upon um, their incentives. And I think to, to the extent that I understand it, it was flat, right? And, and it applied to, to, to everything. So it didn't incentivize one particular form of production um, to the detriment of any other. Hi, my, I'm Scott Nielsen, and my question is about this map. I wonder if you could give more <laughs> details or specifics on how the geography and the economics of the region were breaking down. Because, I mean, you said that people were using the courts or using government to undermine others, but how, how does this map tell us? I mean, I see there's, there's trends in terms of location, but I don't know anything about the region, so. Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I appreciate it. Um, you know, maybe it helps to go back to the very beginning. Uh, when, when the pilgrims uh, first landed in the 1620s, when the great wave of, of Puritan migrants arrived in the 1630s, um, the idea was uh, not to, to really get rich, but, but rather to survive. And um, the first families of Massachusetts had small farms where they um, you know, worked in the field and provided for their own basic needs. Um, maybe they had a little bit of surplus and they would use that to trade uh, to pe with people who had specialized skills, cobblers or you know, what have you, doctors, what have you. Um, the, the problem was uh, they were almost victims of their own success. So uh, the average um, Puritan family throughout the 1600s and into the 1700s would have eight kids. So eight kids per family. You can imagine how that's going to affect these communities. You can't take the amount of land um, where this, this you know, growing family with eight kids lives and uh, divide it into eight parcels for a second generation that will each have you know, families with eight kids. So people begin to expand these communities, people begin to move beyond these communities. And uh, what, what seems to happen is sort of a, a loosening um, of the sort of social fabric and uh, a, a diminishment of the first generation's um, commitment to religion. I mean, you can't imagine a more you know, religious group of people than these, these pilgrims who got on board the Mayflower, the Puritans who 10 years later got on board all the ships that carried them across the ocean. I mean, exposing themselves to, to horrible peril, leaving the world as they knew it, settling um, this new continent that in many respects might as well have been a new planet. You know, I mean, you just don't get more religious than that. It's almost uh, certain that each generation is, is going to uh, see its faith erode. Um, the first generation couldn't have been more enthusiastic. The second generation, raised by those people, was, was seemingly you know, quite devout. The third generation, maybe a little bit less so. The fourth generation, I'm a Puritan, it's cool. Girls in my youth group are hot. 
you know? I mean, you know, that's sort of how it's, how it's going. And, and so as, as this community gets more diverse, and as there are people who are increasingly um, secular, um, as, as people who are traditionalists and people who are um, perhaps you know, more reformist in their Puritanism have different uh, views of church doctrine, you have increased tensions, you have increasing economic tensions, you have increasing uh, uh, distance between people who are really prosperous and, and people who um, continue to live a pretty humble and simple life. And Salem is sort of a microcosm for that. You know, by the 1690s, um, and, and you know, the historians who have, who have looked at this and come up with this theory, um, Paul Boyer and Stephen uh, Nissenbaum, and the book is called Salem Possessed, um, you know, looked at who these actual individuals you know, were. And the people who are accused of witchcraft and the people, their neighbors, who are defending them are people who tend to be more wealthy. They tend to be more engaged in commerce you know, beyond the bounds of, of the village but with the rest of the Atlantic world. Um, and they're the ones who are being accused of witchcraft. The people who are pointing the fingers are the traditionalists, the folks of more modest means, the folks who live um, in the interior of the community away from the seaport, um, who have you know, small family, semi-subsistence farms, uh, whose way of life and whose beliefs are um, fairly similar to those of the original settlers. So you know, there's kind of this big divide uh, between the two groups. And this, this seems as if kind of a last-ditch effort of the traditionalists to hold on to the world um, that they saw rapidly slipping away. Yes. Hello, my name is Gabriela Bachille, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm majoring in economics at Central University of Venezuela. So I was asking, I was wondering um, if you could um, tell me about your insights. There is a theory that says that in the United States, um, things went the, uh, the way they went because of um, religion, that they had uh, th their ethics or, uh, worked more like, um, they, they, they thought of work as it was a way of liberate themselves. And uh, in contrast with Latin America, they perceived work as a punishment. So um, I wanted to know a little bit more about that, if you know something about it, because. Sure. So, uh, you know, England uh, had a bunch of different people who lived in different regions of England. And different regions of England had different characteristics. But one thing we could say for sure is that, uh, interestingly, people from different regions of, of England seem to settle in different regions of what's now the United States. So people from um, south of London, those were the folks who tended to settle in the, the southern colonies, Virginia and the Carolinas. People in East Anglia are the folks who tended to settle in New England. People from the British Midlands were the people who tended to settle in the middle colonies. Um, in those areas of England, you know, there were different religious uh, traditions, different religious movements um, from which these settlers came. Um, the folks who settled in Virginia were um, Anglicans, and uh, there's, there's some debate among historians about the extent to which um, they were particularly devout or not. Um, there were laws in the books requiring them to uh, attend church throughout most of the colonial period, um, all the way up into the 1780s when, when Jefferson and Madison finally disestablished the Anglican church in Virginia. But those laws didn't seem to be particularly uh, well enforced. And um, by some accounts, it seems that uh, days when people went to church, and of course, you know, these Virginians, they're all spread out, right? They have big farms. 
Um, so it was uh, difficult to get to church. And when they went, it wasn't just for religion, it was also um, an important sort of social event. Um, and there was gambling and horse racing going on outside and you know, all sorts of things that kind of make it seem that uh, Virginia, religion wasn't the, the prime motivator for most of the settlers. But New England, of course, is very different. And, uh, and the experience of Pennsylvania is different as, as well. You know, William Penn uh, was a Quaker. Um, the, the king owed his father a lot of money. Um, and the king didn't like the fact that this religious movement, the Quakers, are, are questioning um, the, the supremacy of the Church of England. He also didn't like the fact that the Quakers uh, were pacifists who didn't want to serve in the military. Um, he didn't like the fact that the Quakers um, refused to recognize um, rank in the same way that, that regular English people did. And this was a subversive group of people. And, and so what a wonderful solution for the king um, to both settle his debts and get rid of the Quakers by giving um, you know, this, this colony to William Penn um, so that he could bring the Quakers across the ocean and, and settle and, and, and plant this new colony in the new world. Um, for them, they seem to be very much shaped by their faith, uh, especially early on um, in their dealings with Native Americans, um, in their dealings with one another, and their tolerance for, for diversity. Um, you know, most people really did have a friend in Pennsylvania, or they would soon make one if they arrived in, in Philadelphia um, in, in the 18th century. Um, everybody was welcome, except, <laughs> except the Scotch-Irish. They were not welcome. Um, and a lot of them had to quickly make their way through Pennsylvania and settle in, in the back country. Um, and in the back country, which was you know, peopled last because it's the back country, it's the area that's kind of cut off from uh, the market. Uh, it's above the fall line. You can't you know, have a tobacco plantation above the fall line because you can't float a barge of tobacco down Whitewater Rapids. Um, you know, it will be destroyed. So there, you know, uh, life is going to be simpler, more primitive, more poor. Um, but those people brought with them their own uh, religious traditions. Um, a number were uh, sort of New Light Christians. Um, a number um, practiced a faith. Uh, we describe them as Cameronians. Um, you can imagine them as people with uh, a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Uh, maybe a, a, a religion that was born out of strife. Um, in that you know, tumultuous sort of border zone between England and Scotland, um, and that would you know, be well-suited to the kind of rough nature um, and sometimes lawless nature of, of, back, of the back country. Um, and then, of course, we've talked about the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Um, the Pilgrims were uh, people who declared themselves separatists from the Church of England. They thought that the Church of England um, essentially was too Catholic. Um, that you know, when Henry VIII split off from the Catholic Church, it wasn't a thorough enough reformation. Um, they wanted a, a truly Protestant, stripped down, spare, uh, sort of simple um, and, and self-governing experience without the hierarchy and without um, the, the bureaucracy that the Church of England offered. And the, the Puritans essentially agreed with them, but they never made that official split. So those two groups were able to, to get along fairly well once they arrived in the new world. So I hope that begins to answer your question. Yeah, thank you. Thomas, PhD in law, a student from South Africa. Um, I it seems to follow from your argument that the optimum unit for production is the family rather than the community under the auspices of these colonial companies. Um, my question is, 
which do you, why, why do you think that is? Uh, because in the experience of other c- colonized countries, uh, especially under the auspices of the Dutch East and West India companies, the unit of production of the company and the community was much more efficient than the unit of the family or, or uh, rather small community. So synergies and economies of scale, why didn't this work in America? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, part of it is that you, you do have examples of um, American enterprises that where the, the unit of production is not the family. Probably the best example would be, um, you know, sh- slave plantations where they're cultivating rice in, in South Carolina. Um, South Carolina, uh, you know, even more than Virginia, has an enslaved workforce by the time you get into the 1700s. Um, the number of enslaved people in South Carolina is greater than the number of free people in South Carolina. I think uh, at the time of the American Revolution, it was like 60% enslaved to 40% free. And, uh, you know, there you have um, people who are, you know, being driven to work by their overseers and uh, they don't own their own labor. Um, They seem not to have uh, anything but a a pretty brutally negative um, incentive. I mean, if, if, if you don't work, you, you can be punished um, in some horrible ways, including perhaps the most horrible of all, which would be being sold away from your family um, to another slave owner in another plantation. Um, you know, there weren't, there weren't uh, you know, rice plantations manned by free people, um, certainly not on the same scale. And so it was very difficult to compare, you know, which was most efficient. But I would cast my lot with free labor any day. Um, I mean, enslaved people, their incentive structure, their their incentive, anyone's incentive is to get by. Um, It's to survive. It's to avoid punishment and negative consequences. But there weren't that many positive incentives that rewarded hard work. Um, Those were pretty few and far between. What's that? Not dying. Well, not dying, right. But as we've seen, you know, even that incentive um, doesn't always uh, work as, as well as it should. I think you know, the, family, uh, the family is a unit of production. I mean, when you're talking about agriculture, when you're talking about survival in you know, the rough-hewn environment of Jamestown or Plymouth or, or really anywhere um, before the market revolution, um, I, you know, I think the individual is, is probably the best unit of production. Even families um, have free riders. Even families have those who take advantage of the, uh, the benevolence or the willingness to work of others. You know, you might walk into the bathroom and see that somebody hasn't changed the toilet paper roll, right? Or how do you get your kids to pick up after themselves and clean up their room? I mean, you know, we, we see all sorts of, of, of difficulties with that in our everyday lives. Um, so it's not as if there's something magical or, or, or perfect about the family as a unit of production, but you can say this, right? Um, there are two adults, ideally, and they are um, incentivized uh, to help each other survive and help their children survive. I mean, there, there, there's no one who has a, a stronger, more compelling interest in seeing the survival um, and the success of a child than uh, his or her parents. You know, and children learn from an early age that they need to to work and produce and contribute um, to this family. Um, you know, there's a, a story that people like to tell themselves about the market revolution, or you know, some might call it the industrial revolution in the 19th century. People talk about, oh, the horrible existence of child labor 
in the 19th century. But of course, it's, it's the market revolution that does away with child labor, right? I mean, child labor had been the norm for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, people having something that we would call a childhood and spending a good 20 plus years of their life to develop themselves and learn things and develop special skills and become self-actualized, right? That was not a prevalent concern for the, uh, for the pilgrims and the Puritans and, and, and you know, finally when you start to have families in, in Jamestown. So I don't mean to, to say that uh, it's perfect or ideal, but you know, given the options and, and you know, given the, uh, the, the sort of collective farming that we see taking place there and the you know, second regime of you know, individual privatized property lots um, worked by families, it seems clear, at least in this instance, that that's what, what succeeded. Greetings. Greetings. I wanted to ask you, uh, do you happen to know anything about, in, in 1655 or 1651, uh, Anthony Johnson and uh, John Kayser, <clears throat> the latter of whom actually became the first legally recognized slave, and Anthony Johnson, who, oddly enough, was a man of Angolan descent? Well, could you, could you fill me in? I, I, I don't recall. He actually was an indentured, uh, uh, excuse me, Anthony Johnson was a, uh, was a servant, uh, he, an indentured servant who came over from Angola. Yeah, no, I, I mentioned him. Yeah, he's one of these guys on the Eastern Shore. Yeah, he was actually also one of the few people who survived an, an Indian raid on a uh, farm. Uh -huh. Of the 57 people who, of, of people, he was one of the five people who survived. He did also successfully argue to a court that he had the rights to John Kayser that it was his for life. I was just curious if you were aware of that or any type of, uh, and I was- Yeah, I, re I recall reading about that in, in Mine Own Ground, uh, which I last looked at a couple of months ago. Um, I, what, what do you, do you remember something more? I, I mean, do you have the answer? Well- Because I don't, so. <laughs> well, what I was mostly confused by was that, uh, is that I was just mainly confused by how could like an Angolan really own like another, a man, an African man owning like an, another man. I was just confused. Well, I mean, I think it says something about uh, their views on race. Uh, I'm not sure that their views on race were as, 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 as developed as uh, people's racial views would, would become. And I think that might be a good thing, you know? Uh, for them, the divide wasn't so much about color. It wasn't so much about heritage. It wasn't so much about ethnicity or ancestry. Um, for them, the divide was there are some people who own their own labor and there are other people who did not, right? And I think it's you know, it's, it's obviously terrible that uh, they tolerated the emergence of, of slavery, even though their slavery was, was somewhat different than, you know, the hardened, legalized, uh, institutionalized slavery that would exist in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, but, you know, I think Anthony uh, Johnston, just, just like many of his white neighbors and a few of uh, his black neighbors were living within the system that existed back then um, thinking about how they could uh, prosper and 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 you know survive and provide for their their families and move forward in this growing society, uh, you know I think Anthony Johnson is you know vulnerable and worthy of condemnation just like anyone else who owned a slave, um, but I think it's what makes him special is how unspecial he was, right? I mean what makes him special is how he was able to seemingly fit in just fine in 
this mostly white society. Um, and I think, you know, the story of Virginia, in, in some ways it's a tragic one because of how it ends, but in some ways it's a really hopeful one because it kind of gives us an answer to that very elusive sort of chicken egg question. You know, what comes first, slavery or racism, right? Was there always racism and, and therefore, you know, slavery was able to emerge um, as, as a form of labor because people, you know, uh, discounted the humanity mm. of, of people from different places? Mm. Or is it that, you know, in this world where there were the free and the unfree, and some unfree were, were white as well as black, um, slavery was uh, adopted um, and racism followed afterwards when people were trying to justify to themselves this, you know, horrid practice of um, owning other people. And it seems they exploited the identity politics afterwards. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much.